Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 413, Riding with Ryan Standish. podcast and now we're joined with ryan sandish who's a three-time australian national mountain bike champion and as far as i'm aware the only person to ever race a world cup in jorts which i'm sure we'll hear that story down the line and, and maybe confirm if he is indeed the only one or if now he started like a massive trend that everyone's doing but uh welcome to the podcast ryan thanks for having me guys yeah no thanks for joining us it's cool and yeah, it's, I saw, it was like looking at your social, I, I saw you got the nickname, Jorts is like one of the little monikers you go by. Oh, that one <laughs> yeah. is pretty interesting. The, uh, the Jorts guy. So I, I guess most of our audience probably doesn't follow uh, mountain bike racing feverishly. So I, I think let's start from the beginning for you as to, you know, growing up in Australia, when did you kind of figure out hey, I'm good at, at mountain bike racing versus kind of just, I think most people probably, like Eddie had said off podcast, you know, he, he's ridden a mountain bike before on a trail and that's the extent of it. You know, where did it finally click that you were good at mountain bike racing? That's, that's a good question. I kind of grew up or discovered the sport because there's awesome trails in Alice Springs, Australia, which is where I grew up out in the middle of middle of nowhere in the desert and kind of started by riding with my dad and then started doing, found out there was a little local club. And then there were also a few guys who are a little older than me who were racing at the sort of highest level of the sport in Australia and then going and doing, racing some world cups and world championships and um, which is crazy for being from a small town in the middle of nowhere. And I guess kind of probably eased into realizing that I was fast because <laughs> it, it was always riding with, with people who are older than me um, and who were also racing at that high level as well. Um, but I started taking it serious and started kind of training when I was probably 14, I think, and raced on the road a little bit, raced on the mountain bike a little bit, and kind of did did a little bit of all the cycling disciplines and landed in mountain biking because it's more fun <laughs> for me, more, more enjoyable, more fun than um, racing on the road. So <clears throat> that kind of led i guess once when i realized that i was was fast was that those three national championships that i won which was they were in the junior category so like when i was i think 15 16 and 17 years old but you said you did road racing then as well and 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 just mountain biking's more fun is that the kind of what makes it more interesting is it the danger element that makes it kind of more of a adrenaline rush than say road racing normally would be or is are there other elements that make mountain biking more exciting to you than just traditional road racing 
it's funny you say that because I would put it the other way as far as the danger and risk involved. <laughs> like racing on the road, there's a lot of uh, variables that are out of your control. Like you're riding in a group of, let's say, between between 80 and 150 guys and any one of them could either not point out a pothole or a rock or something that you could hit or they could hit one and then you you run into them and massive pile up i'm sure everyone's seen the the videos from the the tour de france and all the big big races like that so the mountain bike kind of lets you like if you crash then you it's on you it's like your own <laughs> your own fault and I guess the safety on, I still train a lot on the road, but the cars and, and sort of that danger is, is higher than, um, than any, anything you run into on the trails. So, so I guess after those three junior national championships in, in Australia, then do you decide that you're going to make the leap to kind of go pro and, and kind of what does that entail? Like what's a normal season in mountain bike racing? Is it 365 days a year where you're traveling around the world into different races or there are certain circuits that you kind of just focus in on? Like how how does that work? Actually, actually after high school, I took a break from, from riding and racing um, and moved to Columbia for six months um, and worked as a, an assistant teacher down there. So did something completely, completely different, um, for my kind of doing a gap year. And then after that decided I wanted to go, go to college in the States and ended up in Durango, Colorado. Um, their, their college has a really good cycling program at, at Fort Lewis college. So ended up there and and raced at the collegiate level and still kind of was trying to figure out if I wanted to go into a a normal career or to uh to race professionally and that took I mean all four years of college and then after college I still was like I don't know if I'm ready to to commit to racing full-time um and didn't have the the financial support or sponsorship to, to make that full-time, uh, full-time mountain biking and cycling and an actual career. Um, but as far as the seasons go, <clears throat> it really depends on what hemisphere you're in. Cause it's a pretty summer, summer heavy sport. So in Australia growing up the seasons, the season was sort of, October through March was kind of the race season down there. And then you come into the Northern hemisphere or in, in the U S the race season is kind of March or April through October. So balancing that, if you were to race in both, you have to kind of pick which one you want to, which season you want to focus, focus on. Um, and then I guess Europe as well has the same summer structure being in the Northern hemisphere. So, so it's kind of season is slowly getting going now and then it'll go all the way through till, till October. 
Where is it strongest then? Which continent kind of is is the U.S. the center of mountain biking overall, or is it is it can you kind of is there an area where you you have to be as a pro cyclist in order to really be at the top of your game? I would say competitively, Europe produces the fastest cyclists across like across pretty much all the disciplines. Um, but that said, America does have a pretty good support slash pathway for mountain biking to make a career out of it and not have to race outside of the U S. Um, and that's becoming more, more common with different like influencers and YouTube, YouTube stars and, you can you can make a living doing it without without being the fastest athlete in the sport. Yeah, that that was actually going to be one of the questions I had for you is is how much do are cyclists kind of relying on social media as a as a revenue source? I mean, is that actually the majority of the revenue source is kind of sponsorships and and social media kind of stuff, or is it actual prize money and, and competing in the races? Social media side of things is definitely a huge part of it now and prize money and or i guess that social media stuff through helps influence sponsorships and presence your presence at races or mountain bike events not necessarily not necessarily races but sort of there's weekends where you can go and see the latest uh, product releases and they let you test ride stuff and sort of having a presence there working with the brands that that you're sponsored by can can increase their sort of exposure for for those new products and I guess that takes seems to take more precedent to or more have more weight than race results which there is a, there's sort of a small group of athletes who are able to make money through, through results. The prize money is not like nothing huge. There's some, some series that you could, if you won all the races, you could make a living (laughs) from, from the prize money, but you kind of need, you need the time to train for that. So like it's, it'd be super tough to work a work a full-time job and train hard enough to, to be winning all of those races. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in that you, you need the support, the financial support to spend all the time training to get to the point where you can win the prize money as well. So, so does that kind of create some controversy or, or piss some people off where there's maybe a rider who, is clearly the best rider, but isn't getting the sponsorship just because they're just not as, I guess, likable on social media or something like that. Does, is there a little kind of controversy within, within the racing community because of that, where there's this one guy who probably is getting more sponsors than he should just because, you know, he's, he's more out there on, on Instagram and TikTok and everything. There's, I mean, I don't think there's any animosity between, between the athletes. Maybe there's a little, jealousy like man you don't you haven't won a race in in years or whatever but you've got 
all this this support, but then it comes back to where where those guys and those men and women put their energy um, into whether they spend a lot of time building their uh, building their brand and their following on social media, which in in return makes them more valuable than the results they're getting at races from a sponsorship perspective. Like if they've got more, more influence on, on what people are, are buying or where they're, where they're leaning for, for their next purchase. Whereas just winning a race is not necessarily like you could probably win a race on, on any high-end bike that that you could ride sure you're not going to cost yourself some potential sponsors by saying that (laughs) no they all know that (laughs) so then in terms of your own schedule so i mean for for listeners i guess you're currently in arizona but what is your are you traveling are you going cross continents are you only based exclusively in the u.s sort of where are you basing yourself out of for the majority of the season? This year I'll be, I think, 100% in the U.S. Uh, with with all the COVID stuff. I know it's hopefully coming to an end here pretty soon, but it's hard to guarantee international travel and kind of bank on that schedule and, and all the regulations that different countries have for coming and going. Um, so I pretty much decided to keep it all in the U S most of the time you're based in, in Salt Lake city. That's right. Yeah. Most of the time from sort of April, April through December in Salt Lake, and then come down here to Tucson in the, in the winter to get the, the nice sunny weather, get out of the snow. How was adapting to life in Salt Lake City as a as a non-American? I I for I guess it's one of the few things we you and I probably have in common. I lived in Salt Lake City for eight years as a okay. kid, and I certainly know coming. My parents were totally unaware of what the culture was going to be like in Salt Lake before we moved there. <laughs> Admittedly, in the '90s, probably different to what it's like now. I bet it's pretty but different how, now. How much of an adjustment period? Yeah, I think the 2002 Winter Olympics changed a lot. I think you're probably right. I haven't been there that long. I've only been in Salt Lake for a little over a year now. Um, before that, I was in Durango, Colorado, which is another, which is small mountain town. And then I spent two years in Heber City in Utah, which is about an hour from Salt Lake, kind of on the other side of Park City, on the back side of the mountains. Um, so that was interesting being in Heber and then I would say that's more, um, sort of small, older population than, than Salt Lake. So, which was also part of my move to Salt Lake was for more, more young people to hang out with. I'm, I'm actually surprised you haven't heard of Eddie living in Salt Lake because I mean, Eddie's claim to fame is that he holds the, uh, 
eight, ages eight to nine, 50 meter freestyle swimming record in the state of Utah. So I'm, I'm surprised that records never come Man, up. And, yeah, and he's not a, a famous <laughs> face in Salt Lake City. <laughs> <laughs> they've got they've got posters in some places. Yeah, so I'm gonna sure say. they do not. <laughs> <laughs> one one swimming pool complex has Eddie's photo from when he was yeah. nine years old. <laughs> They've got a yeah. They got a statue in inside the pool. It's it's quite impressive. Like and underwater. Also, Frank, I'll correct you. It's one of my claims to fame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the swimmers have to navigate it their way around my statue. So I, I guess just um, I kind of want to take a little tangent because you said that you're now in Tucson, and I saw actually on on your Instagram um, and some others that I follow that there was just a 24 hour race in Tucson, um, which I thought was absolutely fascinating just from the pure fact of racing 24 hours straight and then you know mountain biking and everything like that so can you kind of explain what that race was and and kind of how they go about it and i know that um one of the better racers actually in the u.s broke the record by a substantial amount so um i I thought that was just a, a crazy thing to see yeah that uh that style of racing has been around for for a while i remember doing some in like the mid 2000s when I was first kind of getting started mountain bike racing and there's a pretty they're pretty much all the f- sort of relay format and most people will do them as a team of team of two team of four team of I think we had seven on on my team so you do one lap and then you come back and and then someone else goes out and does a lap and you just keep it goes on for for a full 24 hours and the you mentioned uh, my buddy Keegan Swenson. He does did this one solo. Um, he wanted to give himself a little challenge, which coming from a lot shorter races is is pretty insane. Um, but he so he did the full twenty four hours by himself, no sleep. Um, I think he rode like 340 miles in the 24 hours, which is, which is crazy. And on, on mountain bike trails too. So he's staying awake, paying attention, like kind of with it ish. (laughs) When he got to the finish, he was like, just blank. Like there was nothing going on, but yeah, it's, they tend to be a lot more fun. I'll say what's what's like the nutrition like during that? I mean, is he just is is he just eating anything at that point, or uh, I mean, like how does that work? Being able to kind of get enough nutrients in your system for twenty four hours straight with not even stopping. <laughs> yeah, his I think his nutrition plan. They had like pizza, they had burritos, they had like rice and eggs, they had a couple of like the energy gels and like drink mix all kind like anything you could imagine like candy uh snickers you name it it was probably on his table like donuts it wasn't like anything it was like anything that sounds good you want to have it there so that you can eat that like if something stops tasting good or you don't feel like eating something you want to have like 10 other options, but yeah, I think 
I think he's still eating. It's been like four days since the race. I think he's still, still trying to replace everything that he burned. I'm pretty sure it was like 16,000 calories in a day or something like that, which there's no way you could eat that <laughs> in a day. <laughs> That's crazy. That, that food you just laid out kind of just sounds like uh, an average American's 24 hours of food with, without being on a mountain bike <laughs> for the same 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but those, I guess the 24 hour racing for the most part is there are some people who do it competitively, but it's more of a chance to get together with all your buddies and go do some laughs and drink some beer and hang out and, there's people like that took full, like a full grill set up and we're having a big cookout and yeah, super, super fun. So that's more, more the demographic. It's not like the, there's a few high, like elite athletes that show up, but it's more, more the guys who just ride ride for fun and then get together with all their friends and bring their families out. And it's a big fun event. So I guess I'm sure for some of our listeners who maybe are less familiar with mountain biking, the kind of intricacies of the sport, but I think it would be kind of remiss to have you on and not ask you about injuries within the sport. I mean, you already said that you think that road racing is more dangerous, I think when most people associate any kind of professional bike, like cycling, they picture the accidents more than they picture the successes. So what's your own track record been like in terms of bad injuries? Has it been an issue at any point over the course of your career? And then have you been seeing like what what's the rate, the kind of attrition rate of professional mountain bikers getting injured? Ooh, I mean, I I'm knocking on wood right now. I haven't had any bike on bike injuries that have put me out for, for more than a week or two. Um, just, I mean, you've, you've got your standard scrapes and bruises and <clears throat> all that from, from crashing, but I, I haven't personally had any, any concussions or, um, collarbones and arms and wrists are super common to break. Um, I'm still still waiting for my time to come on the the collarbone. I think it's a kind of a more of a uh, when not if. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would say concussions are are pretty common too. Concussions, collarbones, and and wrists at least one or two people that I'm friends with every year will yeah, do a collarbone or a wrist, or I don't know anyone sort of on the mountain bike that, that has done much more major than that. I feel like the road guys are the ones who get more hurt usually because the speeds are a lot higher too. It really surprises me. I mean, I, I as someone who follows road cycling, I, I mean, I, you do see horrific crashes and I do the speed element and like the downhill, you know, when it's a stage where there, you know, there's real speed involved. I get that bit, but it does just every time I just picture people mountain 
biking and i guess it's the difference between a professional and amateur but i just imagine people you're like going down a track and just like flying into you know like (laughs) losing control on a slippery muddy track and and going all over the place but maybe that's just what i've seen with me and my friends and not the actual professional standard (laughs) biking that could be and i think you also see like all the the youtube videos of like mountain bike crashes you don't really see many of them where like nothing bad happens so so kind of getting back to the nutrition kind of and recovery part is mountain bike racing is it i don't want to say more painful but more stress on your body than than road racing in the sense that you know because you're you're kind of going all over the place and kind of making tight turns and and uphills and downhills that like your knees and your joints are a little more stressed than normal like is that is that something you kind of have to be aware of? And you're, are you like in recovery rooms more getting massages or whatever you have to do to, to kind of do the day-to-day races? That's a tough one too, because most mountain bike races are single day events. So you don't have that same need to recover day after day after day. Like you see the Tour de France where they race for three weeks straight Whereas on the mountain bike, you might race, race on a Friday and race on a Sunday. And then it's a week until the next, until the next event. So there is some need to accommodate for that fatigue, but it's not the same. Like, it's not like you're spending six hours a day for three weeks, just pushing your body to its absolute limits. Um, that said like for i guess joints and muscle fatigue it is still good to have a sort of stretching and foam rolling routine and to to get massages somewhat regularly just to keep your muscles all aligned um and your body in in good shape and i think the other part that comes in is easing into easing into the training so kind of after you take take your off season in the late fall early winter and start training again to not to not go and try and do six hours a day for three weeks because you're gonna that's gonna put a lot more stress on your on your joints and to to ease into it to do to do a 10 hour week and then do a 15 hour week and then do a kind of grow it steadily over the first month so that you're not, even though your body's been doing it for years, you're still not shocking it and um, digging yourself into a hole before you even get into the season. And is it then mostly in terms of where you get sort of stiffness and soreness? Is that mostly sort of joints, kind of knees, elbows? Where is it that your body after a race or after a long training session, where do you kind of feel the most pain? gotta be the quads hopefully hopefully no well, i'd have another guess pain is bad balls, but that's, <laughs> that's just me that's the other reason you don't want to start doing six hour rides straight off the off the bat you gotta toughen things up down there when when i was when i turned tw- when i turned 21 my mother as part of like my birthday present like my 21st birthday celebration she decided they were doing this uh 100 mile cycle around london uh through the night and she decided she'd sign us both up 
This was like she <laughs> she felt like this was evening things up because she'd she'd taken my sister on a cycling vacation in Cuba where they'd cycled around Cuba, and somehow the the equivalent was a hundred mile cycle in London for me. But she, uh, does, I, I did this mom, cycling. Does your mom even know who you are? Like how is how is that how is that what she thinks you're gonna like for your twenty first birthday? <laughs> I, it was a, you know it was a mother son experience and uh, so it was a kind of it was sort of a race but it was mostly you re- like raise money for charity and stuff and uh, I didn't do any training because I figured like if my mother was going to be capable of doing it at the time I was at university I was on the rowing team I was like there's I'm gonna have no issues yeah and a I tried to do it on on basically a mountain bike because I just took my bike from home so it was not exactly suited to what I was taking on. But B, I've never felt the level of pain in my balls. The, you you like, probably couldn't walk. You couldn't it walk was, for like a month. <laughs> it was it was relentless, and I got all the gear. You know, like I had the right the padded uh, lycra shorts on and stuff. But it yeah. was still, it was awful. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not wish that on on anyone. <laughs> I hope you raised raised a good amount of money though. Probably not enough. <laughs> you probably saved money though, because now you can't have kids, so you're good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's that's my long term commute. Like, that's my real contribution to the future of the earth is not bringing any more any more people into it. Uh, so Ryan, I guess speaking of of racing for fundraising, that's something that you've been heavily involved in. So why don't you tell us a little about that and kind of what what charities and things have you been racing for over the years? Yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know how a good way to, to bring this in. Um, but I started doing the, here in the U S there's, uh, a bike MS event. I guess all 50 States have, have an event that is a, hundred miles or 150 miles to raise money for the national multiple sclerosis society. And I got more involved with that in probably the last, I think four years ago was the first one I did, which I got involved because my, my dad was diagnosed about 10 years ago. And as the, as the disease progressed and he's no longer, or he can't, ride anymore so he's in in a wheelchair full-time now so i I was like i need to come up with something to kind of show my support and also raise awareness and and money for for the the cause and hopefully finding a cure one of these days um so that i started doing the the utah event four years ago and it's not really a race it's just a a ride where you kind of you can put together a team or do it on your own and so got more involved with that and then over the last couple years i've kind of tied that in with my race program to have some of the sponsors will donate different whether it's product or do a um, donation matching program where they they'll match up to X dollars in these two weeks. So incorporating that's been really cool to sort of raise more money and, and also more 
awareness kind of get the word out a little more as well. Um, we've done a couple sort of, I guess, 2020 when they didn't have any in-person events, it was kind of a virtual thing. And my friend and I decided to do in cycling, it's called, they call it Everesting. So basically climbing the same vertical feet of Everest in a day on a bike, like you go up and down a hill until you get to 29,000 feet of vertical gain. So we kind of made that into a little, a little fundraiser and was, was really cool. I don't really want to do it again, but <laughs> if we, uh, if it was, makes sense, then I was we just going to ask how, how, how painful was that? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was painful. It was a long, it was a long day. I think we ended up, it was like 120 miles and 29,000 feet of climbing. So it took, it was like 10 and a half hour or 11 hours. I think it was 11 hours for me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess just trying to come up with different random ways to, to get people excited about cycling and also tie in the whole MS fundraising thing as well. So last year we did something a little different with one of my sponsors, Ventum bikes that we did a custom painted bike frame with some parts and then auctioned that off. So kind of growing, seeing how we can grow and, and do different things to, to raise money for, for the foundation. So that's great. That's awesome. And then I, I think, you know, you just talked about auctioning off the bike parts and things like that. And this was kind of a question I've, I've always had about cycling is it's, it's kind of this in between where you look at something like formula one, where the non-human element is playing an enormous role where you have the driver, but then obviously the car is, is driving a lot of those victories versus sports that have very little non-human factor like soccer, where it's literally just a ball and everything else is all human. But cycling is kind of somewhere in that middle, right? Where, where the bike can, like you said, definitely improve performance, but at the same time, you have to be a good athlete and, and a good cyclist. So in terms of, you know, when you're, when people are on tour and, and, and racing in these competitive races, how much are they tinkering with their bike uh, on, on a daily basis? Or are they kind of have their bike, it's their set bike and that's it? Or are they doing daily kind of manipulations? Like you see Tiger Woods has his own factory in his backyard where he's like changing his eight iron every day to see where, how it works better. Is that, are people doing that with, with their mountain bikes or is it, you have your mountain bike and you're good to go? I think it, it really depends on the, on the athlete. I think there are a lot of people who, who are constantly tinkering with different things and different setups. And I've kind of become more of that style athlete I, with doing some different testing with like product testing with brands. And it makes you more aware of how each little thing changes the, the performance and the different aspects of the bike. But that said, there's generally, you have to keep it all sponsor correct. So you only have a certain amount of things that you can change on the bike. So like, there's tires that have different compounds that'll 
behave differently. I guess that's that's similar to Formula One. Like you've got your different different compounds um, on the tires that you can run, but you can change. There's also different tread patterns on the tire that will work better in in different conditions. So if it's dry and dusty, you have one tire that might work better and sort of be faster rolling and more efficient. But if it's super muddy, you don't want to use that same tire because it's not going to, you're not going to have any traction at all and it's going to pack up with mud. So you have a different tire for that. And then within those tread patterns, you've got sort of the different compounds, which are like, will maybe be more sticky and will have a little better grip, but not roll as well. So there's, there's things like that. And then playing around with different suspension setups. So those are the two sort of big ones that you can tinker with on the mountain bike is your, your tires and then your, um, your suspension, which will, your setup will kind of change from course to course or to in different types of terrain as well. Speaking of equipment, I guess we need to hear the, the jorts story and how that came to be and how you were riding pro races in, in jorts <laughs> how you became the jorts guy <laughs> yeah that all that kind of started in college we would just do at the collegiate races we would cut off back then it was like you cut off your old your old jeans that you had um, not really designed for doing any activities in um so we i was gonna say i feel like all george stories start in college (laughs) yeah i think it's a common yeah one night in college (laughs) (laughs) and then we had the mullet and everything was all all going um so last year last year or the year before was like i'll just wear these in uh one of my sponsors it's a they make riding gloves but they started making um making jorts specifically for riding and they're super stretchy and not not super thick so i was like what if i'll just wear those for a for a race it'd be awesome and then did it at a couple local races and then ended up at the the world cup here in in the u.s in west virginia and was like this is kind of a little a little bold to to wear jorts at a world cup race and i was like well i'm not i'm not really at the level that i'm gonna win the race or be in sort of the top top 10 so i might as well have a good time and went out and was kind of near near the back is there's only 40 40 riders allowed in the the sort of friday night short race um and i was in like 35th or something and i was like okay i'm, I'm not going to get lapped i'm going to make it through the race so i'm going to start doing some wheelies too so like started popping wheelies and the crowd was the crowd just went <laughs> went nuts um and then yeah hand up the hand up the company that makes the the jorts were like dude that was insane like <laughs> you need to like do that more and i was like i've been doing it for like a year <laughs> but 
yeah, I do think I'm probably the first first athlete to have done that at a World Cup <laughs> cross-country race. I think there was a guy who did it in downhill racing, but he wore just full full jeans. So, so, so wait, can I want a little clarification? It's it's a company that makes the gloves for mountain bike racing also makes jorts. <laughs> that seems like a really strange yeah. connection. <laughs> well, they make a couple other, like a little bit of other riding gear too. Like they make some, some jerseys and um, some other like long, long pants, but yeah, they started doing, doing some denim in it. <laughs> It's pretty popular. I think I think it's taken off. I mean, Frank's a big fan of jorts, so you're you're already you're talking to the converted when it comes to jorts, and he's never. This has nothing to do with mountain biking. This just just day to day wear. He's always in jorts. Are they active jorts? I, I say, like, I did does wear he get good once. good range of motion? <laughs> no, they 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 were not. They were, as you said, homemade jorts from a Halloween costume when I was. Uh, in university in Paris, so <laughs> it checks yeah, like there all you the go. Another why, one that started in college. On a pair of jorts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. What What are your goals then over the for the kind of rest of your? I know this is a tough question to answer, but kind of for the remainder, the foreseeable future of your career, at least, is it? You know, how seriously do you want to kind of move through the ranks of professional mountain biking? Is that something you want to keep doing whilst developing other aspects of whether that be tied to like training and nutrition? Sort of what's what's your kind of focus for the upcoming years of your career? All right. Well, Eddie, do you have any more questions or? No, I, I've, you know, my, unfortunately, my mountain biking knowledge was almost limited to how bad are the injuries? <laughs> that was kind of like, where is, that's, I didn't, that's I didn't have bad. anything exciting for you guys either. <laughs> well, I don't want to say hopefully you, well, yeah, I, I yeah, I'm like, not uh, disappointed that you haven't had any horrific injuries. You're, you're boring because you didn't <laughs> crash a bunch. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed this weekend you have a really big crash and you can come back on the podcast and tell us what that broken collarbone feels like. Can I update you? Yeah. Have have you ever heard of the curse of the Big Chill podcast? Is is that a thing? (laughs) Well, actually, that's just that's just a. Well, Frank actually can curse people. A duke duke of curse is a real thing. I'd actually say we like to think of it as a big chill bump. A lot of our guests who've come on have subsequently done pretty well in the from an, the athletes who we've had on have have had a couple, couple months of a high performance. So if you've got any races coming up, I think <laughs> you're probably going to put in a awesome. That sounds that sounds good to me. I might have to come on again in a couple months when it starts to wear off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just come on every come on every three months, <laughs> and next thing you know, you'll be in the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's that's one final question i kind of have is is um the are people training towards the olympics or are people training towards the biggest races in the world like are are the olympics considered like the best of the best races or are they kind of almost secondary i would say the olympics is the biggest biggest event in cross-country mountain biking like they've got i think similar to a lot of other sports they have the every year there's a world championships that is kind of at that level is the 
main focus for for all the athletes competing for world championships but then their overall like the olympic cycle they'll structure their training around being in the best best of the best shape for the olympics every four years so well i I guess i'll just have to keep coming on every three months until you make the (laughs) until i get get on the get on the olympic team that's right (laughs) It's getting, I guess, that's only that's already next year, right? Or no, two years. Never mind. Two years till the yeah, two years. So the next enough time Olympics. to prepare. Yeah, I got time. You've got a lot more appearances yeah. on on the big show. What's that for a year? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ryan, for joining us. We really appreciate yeah, I appreciate so this this opportunity, and it's cool to talk about cycling to people who don't do a whole ton of it it's refreshing (laughs) you mean zero (laughs) zero yeah Uh, well not zero ed eddie you you have a hundred mile race under your yeah (laughs) yeah i'm i'm an experienced road cyclist i guess a competitive road cyclist at night my cv (laughs) true at night yeah it was a super not to like keep but it was a really poorly planned event Like it was, it was, it was across the, I think we, we started around 11 o'clock at night and then just went through the night and around between midnight and two, when people started either coming out of pubs and they'd shut roads down and stuff for it. So from a car safety perspective, it was good, but we got heckled a bit when we came out and just like drunk, <laughs> drunkenly people pouring out of pubs and clubs just started shouting abuse at us as we were cycling along. So that was... I've I've yet to see that happen on the Tour de France, but it would be an interesting twist. Yeah. <laughs> to do a night stage. <laughs> night stage with drunken abuse. I think I'm definitely too. Yeah. In. All in jorts. <laughs> All in jorts. All right. Well, thanks again, Ryan. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one.